If you want to turn in your Bibles, Conrad Aiken is going to read for us the passage, uh, Genesis 27, 1 to 17. Unaccustomed as I am, um, this is the scripture for the, this morning. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son, and he answered, Here I am. He said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food, such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau, bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him, and bring a curse upon myself, not a blessing. His mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go. Bring them to me. So he went and took them and brought them to his mother, and his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goats she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck, and she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. This is the word of the Lord. Before we begin, Father, we thank you that you see right through us, that you are not blind, you are not deceived, You're not hoodwinked ever, and yet you love us. You died for us. You want to bless us. You call us sons and daughters who have placed our faith in Jesus. And you give us the riches of your inheritance. God, would you give us that confidence in who you are, the confidence in what Jesus has done to take off the disguises that we regularly feel the need to wear. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, welcome to those of you who are visiting with us. Great to have you here. Welcome to those of you joining us online. I'm Justin. I'm a pastor here. We're going through a series on the life of Jacob. Last week, we started wading into some of the ugliness, some of the dysfunction of this family. And this week, we go one step further, or perhaps several steps further in. And so, uh, this story starts out with Isaac. Isaac is um, old. He is, for all intents and purposes, he's blind. Uh, And he's called his son Esau there to bless Esau. And the blindness here of Isaac, it, it serves as the key kind of driving factor really the driving physical limitation that that drives the narrative. Uh, But it also serves as a key metaphor, because Isaac, despite everything that has gone on, despite God's word to him, despite God's promises, declaration about Jacob and Esau, what's going to happen to them, despite Esau's multiple failures already that have occurred, Isaac remains blind to what God's will is. And his love for Esau, his affinity perhaps for Esau's food, uh, has kept him blind to God's commitment to bless and to work through Jacob. And deception is really the theme of this whole passage. Deception is what is going on here. And so, I think that it will do us some good before we begin walking through all of this to to take a step back and think about what happens when we deceive. Why are we doing this? Why do we come to a place of deception? What motivates that? And then what are the consequences that flow out of that? Uh, I will confess that uh, when I was a teen, and you know, not certainly a, a highlight of my life, but I deceived, or perhaps more accurately, I should say, I tried to deceive uh, my parents quite a bit. Uh, I'm sure some of you may have heard of that dynamic happening with teenagers. Uh, but I thought about, in relation to that, why? Why was that going on? Why was I... Why was I doing that? And I think that um, there's a straightforward answer that's pretty short, right? And that's pragmatism. It's, it's practical that deception oftentimes promises to get you what you want, where honesty may or may not do the job. And so we deceive because it promises to make life easier, promises to make life better. And like all sin, this is a half-truth, because more often than not, in the short term, deception will make your life easier. But, of course, in the long term, it is going to destroy you. Now, for me, I mean, my, my relationship and the trust between me and my parents just eroded and, and dissolved during that time, uh, to, to nothing. And 
we often, though, go to this place of deception when we feel powerless. Uh, you know, that's, that's a big reason why, at least I hope this is the case, it's a big reason why kids tend to deceive their parents more than parents deceive their kids, again, hopefully. Um, and it's not because you, we as parents, are, are so much better or more moral people, right? It's because there's a power differential, And so, as a parent, chances are you don't feel much need to deceive your children in order to get what you want. But as a kid, it can feel like, this is it. This is the the only way I can possibly get what I want. And I say this so that we, we can kind of set some context and maybe have a little sympathy for the sad internal workings that are at play, that are driving Rebecca, that are driving Jacob. You're never deceiving out of a position of security and happiness and confidence. Rebecca comes to this measure and she, she brings Jacob along with her because they're desperate. And of course, sadly, neither of them clearly from the outset are trusting God. Neither of them really believe that God is going to take care of Jacob, despite the fact that God has clearly promised to do just that in in these promises. He said he's going to take care. He said he's going to bless. Neither of them are really believing that. And the main point from this sermon for us is to take off your disguise so that we can enjoy full acceptance with God. Take off our disguises so that we can enjoy full acceptance with God. And we're going to look at, as we go through this, the hatching of deception. We're going to look at the consequences and the shame of deception. And then lastly, we're going to look at the cure. What's the cure of deception? Now, this particular deception is hatched after Rebecca has been eavesdropping on this uh, conversation between Isaac and Esau. And uh, Esau is, or sorry, Isaac is determined to, do, to bless Esau. And so then as soon as Esau goes out, basically as soon as he grabs his hunting gear and heads out the door, Rebecca goes and she grabs her favorite, Jacob, and she's got a plan. And we're going to talk some about this, more about this next week, but all of the characters in this story, all of them, including Isaac, have a profoundly mistaken notion of what blessing is, what God's blessing is. They are all treating it in some regard as if it is a sort of transaction statement in a will rather than benefits that come out of this relationship with your Creator and with your Savior. Now, to get some context here, uh, Jacob and Esau are both about 40 years old. All right, we know this because the excuse that Rebecca uses to get Jacob out of the house after this is because she doesn't like the foreign wives that Esau has married. And we find out right at the end of the chapter before this, chapter 26, Esau is 40 years old when he marries these foreign wives. And I, I say all of that to get some context that Jacob 
Jacob is an adult, all right? He's not, he's not some innocent child. He's not some impressionable teen that's kind of you know, just being dragged along by this manipulative mother. Now, he's old enough to know better. He's old enough to stand against this scheme. But that's not Jacob's nature. And we begin to see how in this family that this family sin of deception has been passed down from generation to generation. They've heard all of these stories. They've actually picked up these habits from their parents, from their family. That the grandfather, Jacob's grandfather, Abraham, deceived others. He kept saying that Sarah wasn't really his wife. It's his sister. Isaac, his father, did the same thing with Rebekah. Said, this is my sister. It's not my wife. Rebecca has picked up and clearly carried along these same values, and now she is actively passing them on. She is training them into Jacob. And we can see that deception is something that this family has simply passed over lightly. They've, they've treated it very casually. That uh, They have just not really addressed this. They've used deception, in fact, to protect their own interests to advance their own agenda. And, and you can see all of that from the way that Jacob responds to this proposal. It, it's pretty trained in already because Rebekah proposes this in Jacob's response. Verse 12, he says, perhaps, perhaps my father shall feel me and I shall seem to be mocking him. Or another translation would be, I, I, shall, I shall seem to be deceiving him. Right? In other words, it's just the pragmatics of this plan. Obviously, this isn't really deception, what we're doing. It's not actually deception. It just, it just might appear, it might look like deception to, to the untrained eye. You know, For somebody who's maybe not familiar with the circumstances, might take it the wrong way. And it's worth a little bit of sober reflection for us as to you know, what are the sins? What are the the bad habits that we are treating lightly. We're just making allowances for, we're letting slide by. As you can, you can guarantee, you can be sure that those who are closest to you, people who follow you, who respect you, who are with you, they're going to pick up those same habits. And another central thread going along here, though, that we can't lose sight of, because it's so... It's so important, and that is God's redemption. God's redemption in this. Part of the beauty of this story is actually how horrible and twisted these characters are. Because remember, this, this is the family. It's this family that God has promised to use to bless the entire world. He's going to work his redemptive purposes in them to bring glory to himself, to bring change into this family, and ultimately to bring hope hope to the entire world. Let's go on now to look a little bit about the shame, or about the shame talk about the shame and the, and the consequences that come with deception. The consequences are deep. And they are pervasive. 
I think this is perhaps most obvious if we look at this through the lens of what's going on with Rebecca. You can imagine here, here's this mother, and she is manipulating and in a power struggle with her husband. And uh, here she is. You can you just imagine this in your mind. She, she is sneaking into her son's room. Her oldest son, her firstborn child, sneaking into his room to steal his best clothes, his nicest outfit, to take that, to give it to her other son so they can steal these blessings from her son. It, it turns your stomach. But you can't see that. You can't see that when you're caught in deception. All you can see, all she can see is what she wants. And she's going to do anything to get what she wants. And what is it that Rebecca wants? Well, she, just like Isaac, she has invested too much into one of her children. And her identity, in a very unhealthy way, has become tied up. It's become wrapped in the success and the welfare of Jacob. And so, it has gotten to a point that she is willing to deceive her husband and to steal from her son. And what are the results of this? In many ways, Rebecca's story is quite likely the saddest of all of these characters here. Rebecca, when Jacob objects to this plan, Rebecca responds prophetically, let the curse fall on me, my son. And that's exactly what happens. Because here is this mother, and she wants more than anything in the world for her son Jacob to do well, to prosper, to succeed in life. But because she's not operating with faith in God, because of a few hours of her decision and what she does here, she's going to have to send away her son Jacob, the one that she loves, far, far away from her. And if you go on and read through the rest of the story of Jacob, it's not clear that she ever, ever sees him again. This conversation here is going to, is going to set off it's this trigger this chain of events such that this may be close to the last conversation that she has with her son. I think we can safely assume that is not really what Rebecca wanted. That these are the results of deception. We get into these deceptive ploys and it ends up getting more and more elaborate to cover your tracks. And the consequences start spreading farther and farther. And they start going for a longer and longer time than, than you could ever believe. And the irony is, <laughs> the irony is that, that Jacob, which by the way, Jacob, his consequences are pretty severe. Right? He, he's going to have to leave. Right? He's going to have to run for his life. He's going to have to live the next 20 years, all because of this incident, the next 20 years as a fugitive starting from scratch. And the irony is God is going to bless Jacob. But it's not going to be because of any of the things that he's thinking that he's going to get out of this whole plan. 
It's not going to be from his family. It's not going to be from the inheritance that he's hoping to, to pull away. So, those are the consequences. Let's talk a little bit about shame. I say shame because, like we talked about, deception flows out of a position of inferiority. And then it goes ahead and it keeps you in that position of inferiority, even when you succeed, because you know how you got there. You know how you got what you want, and and it wasn't by being straight up. And this is the trap of really of all sin. It promises this way out, this way out of this feeling of impoverishment or want or need. (laughs) And then it turns around and bites you, and it leaves you feeling more impoverished, more in want, worse than you ever felt before. And you can just picture Jacob here. You've got to imagine, how do you think this feels for Jacob? Here he is, he's pulling a trick on his blind father, stealing from his brother, covering himself with animal skins on his arms, on his neck, so that he can appear to be hairy. Right? It reminds you of another time that people used animal skins to cover up after shame, after sin. Right? Adam and Eve in the garden. But Jacob, in every step along the way of what he's doing, Jacob is is reinforcing his own sense of inferiority, his own sense of worthlessness that makes him in the beginning feel the need to grasp and to snatch and, and to grab the heel, as his name meant. This is the power of shame. A shame makes you feel unworthy, and you resort to sin, you resort to deception, which then reinforces that feeling that you are unworthy. This brings us to the last point. This is where I want to spend a bulk of our time, because if you take this story in isolation, it's a really sad one. And so, the the last question is, what is the cure? What is the cure for deception? What is the way out? And, and we can be really grateful this story does not sit in isolation. And so for us, on this side of, of the cross, on this side of what Jesus has done, the message for us is to take off, to take off our disguises so that we can enjoy God's acceptance. One of the incredible things about this story is that it takes us right into the heart of the gospel, right right inside of it. And what I mean is that as we enter into and we expose the, the level, the depth of sin in Jacob's life and in our life, we also see more of the depths of God's grace, God's mercy. Because it is actually in, it is actually in and by this elaborate, twisted, terrible, deceptive scheme that God is going to use this to work His good purposes, to bless, to bless this sinful family. And we can see, hopefully, the power of this antithesis that 
The depths of our sin expose the riches of God's grace. The depths of our sin expose the riches and the fullness, the lavishness of how good God is. Now here is Jacob, swindling, cheating, dishonest Jacob, dishonoring his father, envying, stealing from his brother, and right in the midst of this, using this, God is going to bring the power of his gracious blessings on Jacob, and on this family. This is the cross. This is the, the worst, most atrocious act in the history of humanity. The murdering of God's Son. God uses that to display His best, most glorious gift for all of humanity. God uses these things and is not foiled by them, but triumphs through them. And the call for us is to take off, to take off disguises. We've got to take off our disguise to enjoy a full acceptance from God. Like Jacob, we come to God, and therefore, of course, we come to other people wearing disguises. And what I mean by disguise is that we put on some kind of front, We put on some kind of false appearance. And the reason for that is just like Jacob, we don't really believe that we'll be accepted, that we'll be loved or blessed just as we are. Now, we've got to be very careful here because the culture around us, popular culture around, is actually going to proclaim this exact same message. This, this idea of take off your disguise. Right? Be yourself. Be authentic. Be true to yourself. And, and that's where you can find true freedom. And, and that's what you have to have the courage to do. You be yourself. But the, the, the difference here is that the reasoning behind the world offering that advice, the reason behind God wanting us to do that are very different. The world is going to tell you, stop pretending. Stop disguising yourself because who you are is perfect. Who you are is beautiful. And so you need to accept yourself as you are. That's not what the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us to take off our disguises because who you are actually is not perfect. Who you are, who I am, is very very flawed. We are full of problems. We are full of twisted desires. But, in order to be accepted, in order to receive the righteousness of Jesus, in order to, as it were, put on Jesus, you've got to take off the disguise. That's what the Bible is trying to drive us toward. We've got to come exactly as we are to Jesus, full of our flaws, our failures, our weakness, our insecurities. And this is the beauty of the gospel. We are actually restored, we're actually healed by Jesus by realizing how much you need to be restored 
how much you need to be healed. That's how it works. So as is often the case, our our modern culture gets something right and gets something wrong about our human situation. It gets the diagnosis right. Yeah, we need to be more real. We need to take off disguises. What it gets wrong is the solution. Because the solution, there is a big push today, isn't there, for authenticity, for, for realness. And I think living in a digital age has a lot to do with that. You know, people are, are just sick of the phoniness. People just are, are tired of this you know, holographic, almost hologram image uh, of, that we put of ourselves online that, that has meant that even though we are better connected than any time in history, that we're, we're more isolated, that there's been a real loss of intimacy and loneliness. Because intimacy, intimacy comes from knowing who someone really is. Intimacy comes when we take off disguises. And we all have disguises, just like Jacob. These are disguises in how we present ourselves in the hopes of being loved, in the hopes of being accepted or blessed, either by God or by the world or other people. And the disguises, they look like different things. Sometimes our disguises look like rationalizations about why. Why do I do the things that I do? Sometimes our disguises look like comparisons. We we compare ourselves to other people, and and this is going to make me feel better about myself. Sometimes our disguises are things that we cling to, that that we've done, or, or, or parts of a group that we've been a part of, a role that we've played, a job that we have, and, and we use those kinds of things as disguises in the sense of, well, th- this is a part of me that I like, and so I'm going to hide behind this, I'm going I'm to lose myself in this, and that way I don't have to deal with all of the bad stuff. Yeah, I'm, I'm aware of that because that's, that is a particularly real, particularly dangerous problem for me as a pastor. <laughs> I can just say, hey, I'm a pastor. God sees that. God, God knows that. He's going to look after me. He's going to bless me. Other people should, should treat me well. And, and then I'm not dealing with the real flaws, the real failures that are going on in my life. And, and if we can be honest here, I think this is probably one of the, the biggest turnoffs that people have to the church. Because in church we tend to be pretty big on disguises. And in one sense, I think that's very understandable, right? Because all of us, whether you're a Christian or not, all of us understand that if something is, is real, if you really believe something, it needs to be making a difference in your life. And so we feel this need that I, I need to look this way. But that's where I want to make a really, really big distinction, a really crucial distinction, because there is a huge difference. There is a world of difference between Jesus making a difference in your life and you having your life all figured out. And so I think sadly what can happen sometimes is that we walk into a church and all of us we have on our best disguises. Because that's what we think, this is what it means to be a Christian. And I think that can especially be the case when it comes to things like family or marriage. These are sacred Christian values. 
I need to be doing well with that. And then, of course, what happens, you're in a church for some time, and you're talking with some other people in that kind of scenario, and you start thinking, there must be something wrong with me. You know, because I get into fights with my husband or my wife. Or, you know, my kids don't always obey me. They disobey sometimes. Right? Or, you know, I, I feel lonely. Or I feel depressed. And uh, th- there must be something wrong with me. Because I don't, I don't see that. This isn't really, this is, this is not probably a place for me. When in fact, we all know that it's just the opposite. It's not that we as Christians, right, in ourselves, are any better or any worse than anybody else. Right? The only difference as a Christian, besides having God's Spirit, is that we have the freedom to admit our own inconsistency. We have a category for why we are inconsistent. Everybody is inconsistent. We need to understand that everyone is inconsistent. We all have, whether you're a Christian or not, some idea of what the ideal looks like, what the good standard looks like, what a good person should live like, and we're all falling short of that. We're all not, not living up to that. But the difference for a Christian is that we don't have to sweep that under the rug. We don't, we don't have to wear a disguise or deceive. We can actually look at those things and say, yeah, that's why I'm a Christian. Because I need Jesus to save me from me. Or from all the ways that I'm continually failing to live up to who I should be. Jesus has a parable about the importance or the value to us and the um, the preciousness, I think, of owning, owning our own inconsistency in life. And this is coming from Luke chapter 7. The, the context here, Jesus is uh, being criticized because uh, he, he's let this sinful woman, this woman who's really messed up her life, uh, get, get too close to him. And, and Jesus responds by, this, by, by telling a story. He says the story is about a money lender, all right? And he uh, essentially loans uh, two people out, a very generous guy, loans out uh, one person $8,000, about another person about $80,000. Neither of these two people can pay. Money lender cancels the debt of both of them. And then Jesus' question is, which one of those will love? Which one of those will love the money lender more? Right, obviously, the answer is the person who cancel 80,000 of debt. But the, the implication for us, the point for us, is that the more that we see, the more that we are aware of, the more that we are in tune with, the more that we acknowledge and confess and own our deficiencies and our failures and our faults, are so far from excluding you from being a Christian that's actually going to make your Christian faith more real, more valuable, more precious, because you see more of the depths. This is how the grace of Jesus works to break us free from shame. 
Let me just close by offering just two very practical uh, exhortations. Right? How can we take off our disguises? How can we take steps toward this? Number one, cultivate transparency with God. Cultivate transparency with God. He already knows, okay? He already knows all of it. And he's offering you and me fullness of grace and love and forgiveness in Jesus. So, so go and develop that level of, of intimacy with God. One opportunity for doing that is just within our worship service. We have that time of confession and uh, an assurance. So to use that opportunity to bring your weakness, your failures, bring that open to God and, and receive His grace, receive His forgiveness in that. Number two, cultivate transparency with others. Pretty simple. Cultivate transparency with God. Cultivate transparency with others. And I'm going to get very specific and very practical here. This needs to be somebody besides your spouse. Okay? It is necessary, it is necessary that you be transparent with your spouse. There's got to be more. It has to be more than that. also needs to be somebody from the same sex. And the question is, do you have somebody like that? Do you have, do you have someone in your life like that? It doesn't have to be everybody. should not be everybody, okay? Uh, you don't need to be going to the grocery store and, and dumping your deepest secrets on the cashier serving you there. But we, you just, we, we need to find ways of stepping towards that. Our community groups is a, a great place to start. Right? Just where can I look for? How can I develop uh, some of these relationships or people that I can trust with, with the things going on in my life? Because we got to find people who will help us see and experience more fullness of the grace and forgiveness and love that God has for us when we take off our disguises. Is that the more real you are able to be, the deeper down you are able to go into the mess and the ugliness, the deeper you are going to experience the extent of God's grace and His mercy and His forgiveness. So I just want to encourage us to be, and pray for us, uh, to be moving towards that. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank You that You are everything that we need. You know everything about us. You love us. You accept us. You, you bring us to Yourself. And we don't need to have any pretense with you. I just I pray that you would give us that boldness. I pray that you would give us that courage to take hold of you, to take care of the, the real fullness of what you have for us when we're able to come without disguises. In Jesus' name, amen.